You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Warwick Life on Warwick Radio. My name is Scott Nerney. I grew up in Warwick and have been a homeowner for over 30 years in our lovely city. My goal with this podcast is to highlight what is special about Warwick and how you can get the most from our seaside community. This podcast is presented by the Varnum Military Museum, located just over the border in East Greenwich. Patrick and his staff have a fantastic museum. I must see a lot of information about Rhode Island residents, especially Warwick residents. Please, when you stop by, go on their Facebook page. Thank them for supporting our podcast. Our guest today is Patrick Donovan. He is the museum curator for the Varnum Military Museum in East Greenwich. We're stepping over the line just a little bit. In fact, we go there, we'll park our car in Warwick and walk over to East Greenwich to see the fantastic museum. Invited him here today to give us an update about what's going on in the museum, a little background about everything that's there, and uh, we're excited to have him. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. My pleasure to be here. I always appreciate having the opportunity to promote the museum for sure. Great. Um, Before we get into the museum, a little background on yourself. Uh, Where are you from? I'm originally from Indiana, small town just north of Indianapolis. Went to graduated from Indiana University, and I moved out to Rhode Island in '95 wow. to work for American Power Conversion, now owned by Schneider Electric. I'm still with the same company all these years. Great, um, that's a lot of years. Yeah, good for you. And you live in what city now? I'm in East Greenwich, okay. actually within walking distance uh, of the museum, which is. Very handy. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, While people are listening to this, give us uh, the website for the museum. It's varnumcontinentals.org, which is a bit of a mouthful. The easiest way to find it is just do a simple Google search on uh, Varnum Armory. That's Varnum with a V, V V-A-R-N-U-M, and you'll find us. Okay, and we'll put that in the show notes when people click on it. And since you've mentioned the Continentals and Varnum, give us a little uh, thought process of what Varnum Continentals were. So we're an organization. We've existed since 1907. Wow. And we originally formed as a state-chartered militia, believe it or not, a ceremonial historic military command. And we built the armory, that facility, between 1913 and 1914. We built that as a place to do drill, to meet, hold events. And literally from day one, uh, we've always had a space in that building uh, as a museum, holding relics of Rhode Island military history specifically. And uh, today we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're all volunteer which I'm kind of proud of the fact that we have this incredible collection of Rhode Island military history, and it's all uh, done in our spare time as a labor of love. And, and as a curator, uh, what typically is your role in the organization besides everything? I mean, Yeah, so fundamentally I'm responsible for both the building itself as well as the museum collection Uh, We have a museum collection policy that kind of governs the scope of our collection and how we handle the objects, the care of the objects, our policy for acquiring new items, for deascensioning items, and we have a committee that that, uh, works with me under that policy. Um, But uh, yeah, fundamentally, it's about care of the building and the collection. Walk me through the museum. 
you know, as you walk down the stairs, first of all, on the first floor is a fantastic gathering area. Yeah, gallery. the big drill hall. Yeah. Um, that, that is yeah. amazing. Beyond that, walking down the stairs, it's a hallway, as people can kind of visually think of this as I describe it, with what I would say is kind of meeting rooms on both sides. Correct. And it's all done in different eras of, of history of the world and as Rhode Island relates to it. So kind of walk through those, those hallways with us. Yeah, so you go down this uh, one staircase to get down to the museum level, and you have this long hallway, the hallway of pictures. And then off this long hallway are a set of rooms. And we sort of arrange our collection by time period. So each room is a, we have a 19th century room where the bulk of the collection is from the American Civil War. Um, we have a uh, colonial America room that is 17th century, 18th century, and early 19th. It's uh, largely Revolutionary War period items. We have a space that's dedicated to the World Wars, uh, World War One, World War Two, And right now we're in the midst um, Half of that space downstairs, uh, it's roughly 3,000 plus square feet. Uh, half of that right now is shut down. We're doing complete renovations on the space. Um, we're going to more than double our exhibit space after we're done with this renovation. Wow. And that's going to allow us to go beyond just World War II today. And we're going to have a, a room dedicated for Cold War period, Korean War, Vietnam conflict, and then also have uh, a space dedicated for the global war on terror and really just bring our collection up to the present time period. And a lot of these items are specific to Rhode Island uh, veterans or yes. people who are supporting or in these conflicts? Yeah, that's kind of our niche in the museum world, I would say, is that the vast majority of what you see in the museum is specifically tied to a Rhode Islander to a particular unit from Rhode Island, or at least New England. And that allows us, because we know who used these objects, who wore these things, it allows us to tell a really rich story, a much more interesting story, personal story about these things that I think is, you know, uh, exciting for people who come to visit. The difference I see from the standard, as you say, museum, in a dictionary sense, if you walk into one, is self-guided and there's stuff to look at, maybe some note cards, but pretty much it's you're not really getting the flavor. What I like about your operation is there's often, every time I've been there, there's someone to kind of walk you through. That's correct. And point out the things that don't look cool from the start. Right. Uh, and tell you the story behind it because you're personally attached with them or their family or know yes. the history. Every item in there has a background, which is just amazing. I mean, talk about a couple of your favorite items. So my, I have uh, one of my favorite items is a little black book that most people would just walk right by and not even notice. It's a Bible, and there's a name embossed in the Bible of Alfred G. Gardner. He was in Battery B, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery during the American Civil War. He's very religious, and he carried this Bible in his sack coat pocket every day of the Civil War. He's a witness to all the major battles in the Eastern Theater. He's super devoted to his wife. He has five children who he loves to death. And when he would run out of paper, he would use the Bible as a diary, and he would write in the margins of the pages little messages to his children mostly, words of advice, words of wisdom, emotionally charged stuff. At the Battle of Gettysburg, 
uh, on the third day of that horrific battle, 170,000 Americans fighting each other over a three-day period, 51,000 killed, wounded, or missing by the end of that battle. Alfred's right in the thick of it. And during this great uh, cannonade, he begins to return fire with his cannon. He's about to load his cannon when the muzzle of their gun is struck by a Confederate artillery shell, and it explodes, instantly kills gunner number one, William Jones, on one side of the tube. Alfred has his left arm severed just below the shoulder. He has a gaping wound in his rib cage, and he goes down on his back, and he's, he's bleeding to death, but he's still conscious. His best friend, his tent mate, the sergeant of that gun, was Albert Strait, and they had made a promise to each other before the battle that if one of them were to be hurt, the other would come to their aid. And true to his promise, Albert Strait bends down to Alfred. He said he reaches up with his one arm, he grabs his hand, and Alfred's dying words were, please tell my wife I died happy. And then he says, please make sure she gets my Bible. Albert doesn't take the Bible yet. He turns away from him, and he hears Alfred yell out in a loud and clear voice, Glory be to God, hallelujah, amen, I am happy. And he bleeds out and dies. They bury the two men the next day on July 4th. And um, we discovered a letter in 2010 at the Rhode Island Historical Society that Alfred's brother actually went down to Gettysburg, found his brother's body, and brings him home. When you read the inscriptions, you completely understand why he wanted... Um, that Bible to get back to his family so badly, which it did, by the way, it did get back to his wife. But the last entry in the Bible I've seen with my own eyes, we're digitizing these, it's written in pencil, it says, July 2nd, 1863, this is the day before he dies, he says, Gettysburg, in battery, all ready for action. I am well in body and I'm, my mind is clear about the future. The thought of heaven has cheered me on this march from Falmouth to Pennsylvania. And he writes, children, exclamation point, always be of good cheer and always do right. This is the wish of your father. And that was the, the last thing that he wrote, last message to his children. Wow. It's, uh, it gives me chills just hearing the story. It's, you don't see, like I said, for someone to tell that story while they're in the museum and, and your staff is there, it's so much different than, than looking at a painting or looking at an artifact in yes. a case. Yes. And and Agreed. some of the items, you know, you can actually you know, get really close up to. And yes. if you're on the, the dignitary list, which is pretty much everywhere that goes in there, <laughs> maybe even handle an item or two that, you know, certain ones. Absolutely. Yeah, we always do that, with, particularly with children, with kids. who have yeah. You know, they we, we try to spark an interest in our past, our history, and... Letting them hold a musket, for example, can really light up a face, and yeah, yeah, we we do that it, because it's a different it's a different time back then where folks were you know, so many, especially the Revolutionary War, you were never out of it. Like today, where there's a war, it's far away. Yes, um, it's it was in your backyard. That's right. Or you were part of it. That's right. Um, to see the the items that people have, you know donated to the museum is, is priceless to me. Um, get to look back at Rhode Island history. And a lot of these items come to you, they're not in the best of shape because they're two, three, four hundred years old. Um, talk about what your process is to bring those to museum quality. Yeah, one of the unique aspects of our museum is not only do we have the, the museum itself, but we actually also have a textile conservation lab 
We also do document conservation. So we have a professional textile conservator, Maria Vasquez. She has a master's degree in textile conservation from University of Rhode Island. We have a document conservator that works at Harvard University. She lives in Providence. And so we uh, not only work on our own objects, but we also act as a resource for other local institutions, libraries, historical societies, museums that uh, don't necessarily have the expertise or the funding to be able to care for these things properly. So any textile that comes to the museum, we immediately put it in the freezer uh, to make sure that we there's no bugs in it, that there's no moth larvae that might be eating the cloth. Um, so we freeze it, we take it out, and um, Maria works her magic, and we mostly conserve we don't restore per se but we fill moth holes uh, she builds custom uh, dress forms to display the uniforms that so that they're properly supported any kind of headgear she'll make a custom insert that properly supports the inside of the of the hat um, yeah if you don't care for these things they might be fine for 20 30 years but if you repeatedly put them in these uh conditions where they're not properly supported, you will destroy the object over time. So um, working with these professionals, I've personally really learned a lot. Um, and uh, it's, as a result, our museum is very professionally displayed. You know, things used to literally just be hung by piano wire and hanging on bare nails. Yeah. And that's how it was when I came in sure. 10 years ago. But now it's much more professionally um, taken care of. And we have a close relationship with the Newport Naval War College Museum. And we've been able to get display cases, professional museum display cases from them. So even though, yes, you can still get up close and personal, you can see things in 360 degrees, we're putting more and more of our important objects behind glass now, which is, you know, you need to do that. So sure. That's been a big thing for us is trying to professionalize the care of this place. Um, the, the collection's too important to do otherwise. I, I completely agree. Roughly, when you open up the new exhibit areas, what's a ballpark of how many exhibits you have or artifacts? Oh, man. I would guess that we're going to have 60% of our collection on display. Wow. And the number of objects is well into the many thousands. Wow. Um, particularly if you count documents and things like that. But uh, yeah, we're very dense. So the, the kind of the, when you go into a modern museum today, it's very artifact light and mm. very signage heavy, a lot of digital things being used and interpretation. You walk into our museum and you are almost overwhelmed with the amount of objects. And um, for people who like material culture and history, that's uh, it's a re very rewarding. And I know on your Facebook page, which I highly encourage people to follow, every once in a while they'll post a picture of, oh, look what we just found in the archives, which I know is fun for the, <laughs> the fans to see. I know people knew it was there all along, but you're just pulling it out. And in some cases, I think, yeah, maybe it wasn't really known that it was there in a box That's that was shipped into you. Definitely and, true, 100%. Um, it, I. That's my biggest joy is going through our storage rooms, these old boxes that are packed full of stuff. You never know what you're going to find. And I keep thinking I've gotten to the last box, you know. I don't want that to happen because I enjoy <laughs> it so much. But uh, it was just um, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago, we discovered a, a letter in a random box of receipts from the 1950s and 60s. I stuck my hand in there. I felt an old piece of paper. It was a Revolutionary War letter 
written by an African-American soldier in the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, and he's writing to his former owner, begging for help to get a discharge because war is, quote, disagreeable to my mind as well as destructive to my health. Very wow. sad letter. I think he has PTSD. Yeah. Perhaps the earliest, one of the earliest, you know, letters of an American soldier discussing what today we would call PTSD. Sure. Um, but just, it's one of only two letters known to exist in the world that were authored by an African-American during the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's, a, it's a national treasure, and it almost got thrown away. Wow. And what are your hours typically for tours if people want to come by? So we are, right now in this period, we're a tour by appointment. Okay. Um, it's easy to do on our website. There's a little the tab at the top of the page to book a tour. They come right to me. Most likely, it would be me giving the tour. I would budget two hours. Um, I can okay. with enough time. I can do it. You know, during the middle of the day, late afternoon, after work, weekends are good. So we're pretty flexible, and uh, I'm adding more and more um, docents to help out with that too to give us better coverage. But eventually, our plan is to be open with normal hours. That's what we're working towards. Okay. And are you looking for volunteers? We are, we're pretty set in the museum, but I'm looking for people with special skills, uh, fundraising skills. We're looking for accountants. We're looking for people that have legal skills. We're always interested in meeting professional people with those types of skills uh, to join our team. Okay. And people can donate to the organization as well? Yes, we depend on the goodwill of the public. Again, we're all volunteer. Uh, we have, it costs us about $50,000 a year to run the place. Insurance is our big expense, energy. You can donate through our website. There's a tab for that. Um, so anything that people could offer would be helpful. Yes, thank you. Thank you, for Patrick, for spending some time with our audience today and sharing some insights on Warwick Life. It's a great time to be in Warwick, and for those not living the Warwick life, come pay us a visit. Park your car right on the border, take a walk over into East Greenwich, visit the Varner Museum, drop them a note, tell them when you want to come by. Patrick or someone on his staff will be fantastic guides to show you the history of Rhode Island as it relates to all of the military history in the Varner Museum. That wraps up another edition of Warwick Life on Warwick Radio. If you have any comments, content suggestions, or questions, drop us a line at warwicklife at gmail.com. Thank you to Tester Manuelian for our lead-in and closing music. She's a music major with an incredible career ahead of her. See you next time. You're listening to Warwick Radio Online. The voice of Warwick, Rhode Island.